0: Good morning, church. Good morning. Will you please open your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to read together 1 Thessalonians 2 from verses 13 to 16. Uh, we're going to do things a little bit differently today, so I'm going to read, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to watch a, a video together, uh, which I think will help us apply and prepare our hearts for this passage quite well. But let's read together. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So, as always, to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last." Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word today, we come needing you to work in us, believing that you can, knowing that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we will hear your voice today. We don't take this privilege lightly, Father, and we are grateful. So we pray that you would do that work among us. Amen. All right. Let's watch this short video together.
1: Dara na nundi ibudayb na gigip memero. Dara memero kum. Pog yon na nundi ginere ang mulat lam Memero buku wenena up kemila map. Dawa wena ani si ani yag elulama. labuga memero kum niya ang mulat lam siyang wena. Ooii nimbabi ketsipog. Seni Siapa ni? Wenina. Mundi ibu mati ut samae wahyu. Kiki ingyang upnayo wana na naemi yung kiblam nunaboga na yung komport neri masaragat emi yung mapon nisinap nisinemi yung sa ingingyang ulam opti na ba ingingyang ulam nyo mo neriigil na kigip lawab yu pertanian lama aparsengena tanda ngayong lamnong nyan ikone kigip pesaro pesingting kayo mi meyon do na bout na ne tok siwa nundi ngi ngopchi nundi wal ki tabo do wapti am busun ba nundi wuti ay tobi te mi yom di yuw la rob ni ni sina nundi yuw Tinilim awak nak cikba, sih tina, sih te lim, sih mawak ane ke, ambatta balam cikba, nak na, Wenang aku, deblah aku, dimandiyan enak deh jelah aku buka sampai orang
0: Imagine holding God's Word in your hands, the Bible, and counting it a gift to match the gift that Simeon, who held Jesus Christ, the Word from the Father, in his hands. The prayer of that pastor, today, the day you had chosen for this to be fulfilled, has come to pass. O God, today you have placed your Word into my hands. Just like you promised, you have placed it here in our land. This is what it looks like. This is what Paul speaks of for a people to receive and accept the word of God. He doesn't mean begrudgingly assent to its truth. Yes, I I know it's the word of God, but the word here for accept means to welcome, like you welcome a guest into your home. The Kimul people welcomed God's word like a treasure into their homes. I love what that mother said, I will pass it on to my children and it will keep them on the path of righteousness. And once we're gone, our children will pass it on to their children. We were made to know God and we rebelled against him and rejected him. And his answer was to pursue us, to call out to us, to speak to us through his Son and through his word. Is it a small thing that we have been given this word in our own language? We ought to approach it with reverence and with submission. We ought to treasure it as it is. Dare we take for granted such a gift? when many in our world are dying without it. And yet we do take it for granted. We let it gather dust on our shelves. We are quiet about what it says in a world that is lost without it, a world hostile to it. We must learn from the Kimuel people. We must learn from the Thessalonians They welcomed the word even though it made them unwelcome in their own city. So as Paul encourages them to persevere in this passage, we welcome this word today as God's very word to us. I have two divisions in the text. In verse 13, we see an encouragement for those who welcome the word, and then in verses 14 to 16, a warning for those who, who oppose it. Number one, an encouragement for those who welcome the word. Let us read verse 13 together again. Paul says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers, If we are going to welcome the Word of God as we ought, we need to understand what we mean when we say that the Bible is God's Word. Many say that it was just the words and the opinion of men, writing in ancient contexts, and we claim more than we should when we call it the Word of God. Well, our understanding of the Bible's composition must take into account Within God's sovereignty, the truth that it was written by human authors. Paul says, you received the word of God which you heard from us. The Bible didn't just fall out of the sky, complete with maps and concordance. The 66 books of the Bible were written down by real men. And they had their own personalities, their own peculiarities. It was a process that took over 1,000 years. And we see in each of the books different emphases and different purposes. David was one kind of a man, and Moses was another. Isaiah's prophetic voice was different to Jeremiah's and to Ezekiel's. John's style of writing was different to Matthew's and Mark's and Luke's, and each gospel has its own flavor. Every one of Paul's letters shows the passion and the emotions, the troubles and the joys that brought, was brought about by unique circumstances. To say that the Bible is the word of God is not to diminish the genuinely human process involved in its composition. And the writers who penned it, they wrestled with which words to use and how to structure their books. But such is the greatness of the sovereignty of God that even through human involvement, God would own every page, every line, every word as His own. The Bible presents to us through human agency the very Word of God. And when we read it, and when it is faithfully preached, God speaks to His children still today. What a privilege! How do we know that we don't claim more than we ought when we say that the Bible is God's word and not just the words of men? There are many evidences that we could point to, and I just, I just want to highlight two that I, I believe are here in verse 13. And The first is this, the Bible's own self-attestation This is not a claim that we have made up. There is a unity of understanding throughout Scripture that the Bible is not just the words of man, but the words of God. It is a claim that Scripture makes for itself. When the prophets speak, they say what? Thus saith the Lord. Can any man say that? The Jews weren't confused about the Bible, in the time of Jesus' day, even Jesus said that the Old Testament scriptures were God's word to man, not just man's opinions about God. The New Testament authors wrote about the Old Testament that God had spoken through human agency. For example, Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1 says this knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So while real men wrote the words that they wanted to write, they were moved and employed by the Holy Spirit to say exactly what God wanted them to say in the way that he wanted it said. B.B. Warfield, the great scholar, once gave an example, an illustration to illustrate how God could be at work with human agency in bringing about the Bible. He used the example of a a great cathedral and the light shining through a number of stained glass windows. The pigments in the various panes color, color the light that comes through it. And so critics say, Any word of God which passes through mind and soul of man must come out discolored by the personality through which it is given. And just to that degree ceases to be the pure word of God. Warfield says what they forget is that the cathedral was designed by a builder who intended for every colored pane to filter the light exactly as it has, exactly as it does, and so creating one complete masterpiece. That's what we have in the Bible. And even now in the New Testament, in this verse, this is one of the verses in the New Testament where Paul claims something for the apostles that the prophets claimed for themselves in the old, in their preaching and in their writing. It says, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. There is a self-awareness in both Old Testament and New Testament that the Bible is God's word. And it is proved to us through its, its glory, the glorious perfection of its consistency and its message. It's not just the Bible's self-attestation that is important for our, our confidence and the way that we live our lives as well. This verse points to the testimony of the Holy Spirit as well. God impresses upon the hearts of believers when they read and when they hear the Bible preached faithfully that what they are hearing is God's word. This is what the Puritans wanted to make clear. We've been studying the, the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. We've just gone through this section on scripture. And in chapter 1, paragraph 5, they point to many evidences of why we are to believe that the Bible is God's word. But then they say at the end of the paragraph... Notwithstanding all this, our full persuasion and assurance of its infallible truth and divine authority is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. And so we don't just have this precious gift, God's word in our language, we have the assurance that God himself speaks to us through his word. And Paul makes this clear in verse 13. Because this is a prayer of thanksgiving. And who is he giving thanks to? Who is he directing his gratitude towards? When he's grateful that they received the word. He's not grateful to them for the way that they received the word. He's grateful to God for how they received the word. And he says, this is the word at work in you believers, if you are a believer, it is because God has done something in your life through the power of the word. If you find yourself opening the Bible and reading the Bible and hearing the Bible preached and you know that it is just not just ordinary words, not just the thoughts of men, if you find that it is precious to you, that you love it, and that in it you hear the voice of God you ought to fall on your knees and cry out and say, thank you, God. Thank you for what you've done. My whole confidence right now is this. Insofar as I'm faithful to the word in my preaching, when I preach in human words expounding scripture, I know that God causes you to hear not just the words of man, but his own voice. An awareness of what God must do for this to have any kind of success fills me with trembling in the week as I study. And if you are a believer, as you sit here, you ought to sit praying and listening. God, do that. Do your work in me. Do your work in those around me. Cause us to hear your voice. Do it in all of us. Little prayers like this constantly going up as we gather, clinging to the promise of Isaiah 55. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. And shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Do you believe it, Hillcrest Baptist Church? Are you grateful that you hear your father's word, his voice? The word at work in us. The spirit uses the word to bring about new life. 1 Peter 1, 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. It is the word that Christ prayed for us in John 17, 17, would sanctify us in truth. It is the word that Brahm read in Psalm 19 is perfect, reviving the soul, sure, making simple, making wise the simple, right, rejoicing the heart, pure, enlightening the eyes, true and righteous altogether, more to be desired than gold and sweeter than honey. Like the Kimuel people, we ought to praise God that he chose our language to be one of the languages into which his word was translated. We ought to cry out with John Wesley, oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. And we must recognize that it is not just about us. The measure to which we welcome the word of God will determine the church's impact in the world. You know what I found so convicting about that that video was their, their gratitude to God. For generations, as a people, they had not had the word in their language. And God could have passed up their generation, but by His grace, He did not. He didn't pass them by. And they had the treasure, the word of God in their language. And God uses people who treasure the word and who devote their lives to it to bring about what we saw. Paul's gratitude for the Thessalonians is not just that they received the word. In chapter 1, it's because it went forth from them as well. Do you remember verses 6 to 8? And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, and with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of God the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. They'd received the word, been faithful to it amidst Great affliction, and so it had gone forth from them. And opposition to the word was not unique to their day, right? There is great opposition to the Bible even today. So number two, we have in this passage a warning. A warning for those who oppose the word. Paul gives one of the strongest warnings we find in all of his letters to those who oppose the gospel. Look at verses 14 to 16. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, he says, to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Remember that Paul has been forced out of the the city of Thessalonica, soon after having planted the church, and it was Jewish opposition in the city, jealous of his success in preaching that, that caused a riot in the city. They slandered him before the Gentile rulers, and so everyone in the city was against the church. And and Paul has to leave now this church to face persecution right from its inception from their own countrymen in the city. This is the Jewish opposition that then followed Paul to Berea, followed him wherever he went. It was the first persecution of the church in Jerusalem as well. By opposing the, the apostles' message, the gospel, they opposed the very God they claimed to serve. They were just like their forefathers in the Old Testament, who went after foreign gods and despised the word of the prophets and killed the prophets. And having refused to listen to their words when God sent His own Son, the very word from the Father, they rejected Him and they killed Him as well. And Paul's final verdict in verse 16 couldn't be more stern, couldn't be more serious. They do all this, he says, so as always, to fill up the measure of their sins. God is waiting. Judgment is coming. There's a certain amount whereby he will consider their measure full and wrath will be poured out. Many scholars have rejected this passage. God wouldn't speak like this. This can't be God's word. Paul is speaking from hate. He's a bigot. To accuse Paul of hate would be to accuse Jesus of exactly the same thing. Paul is only echoing Christ. Do you remember what Jesus spoke to the Pharisees? In Matthew 23, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, "'for you build the tombs of the prophets "'and decorate the monuments of the righteous, "'saying if we had lived in the days of our fathers, "'we would not have taken part with them "'in shedding the blood of the prophets.'" Thus, you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you going to escape being sentenced to hell? Does it get more serious than that? He says in verse 13 Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Will you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Paul is not speaking from hate. He's speaking the words of Jesus. And he speaks as one who was exactly where they are. He persecuted the church. He did everything in his power to see it destroyed. And so he warns you not out of hate, but out of love. We know Paul's heart to the Jews in Romans 9, verse 2. I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. This also is an echo of Christ's own heart. He says as well in Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. The same heart that rejoices over the way that the Thessalonians received the word is the heart that issues this stern warning against those who oppose the will of God and displease the father by opposing his word. It's the heart of one who's been saved by grace, who was walking in opposition to God, and saw the risen Lord, who said, "Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me?" And it is this heart that we ought to emulate today. You may think, well, at least this warning doesn't apply to us, doesn't apply to the church. We would never stand in opposition to God's purposes for the word, for salvation for the world. I believe there is application for the church. And so I want to close today by applying this warning in two ways. I believe there are are two battles that the church is facing today. One is practical and one is theological. And we need to be ready. Firstly, what we see so often in the church even in the church, is this kind of tepid heart towards the Word of God that shows itself in a disregard for its commands, ignoring the call to surrender to Christ as King. The evidence that you are saved, that you are indeed a child of God, is not sinless perfection, but it is a heart that desires to obey It is a controlling desire to live a life that is pleasing to the Father. And this desire produces a hunger for the Word because it is through the Word that we know God and know His will. This desire produces obedience to the Word and a lifestyle of repentance where we fall short. But what we see so often in modern Christendom is a people who desire not truly to please their Father, Rather, they just want to lay claim to the perceived benefits of being his child. They'll say things like, all glory to God. But when the opportunity for happiness comes, presents itself in a way that is in opposition to God's word. And the Bible finally comes to rub against their lives. They will compromise and choose sin over Jesus Rather than desire holiness and being conformed to the image of the Son, they will reinvent God in their own image. My God wants me to be happy, they'll say. Or they'll degrade His holiness by living as if their sin is not that bad and God does not really care. Or they'll reinterpret or ignore the passages that are standing in their way. And rather than welcome the word in a way that shines a light on the glory of Christ, and the excellence, the supremacy of Christ, a life that says, I will obey because Jesus is enough for me. They oppose mankind by claiming the name Christian and dragging the name of Christ through the mud. And the reality is that in many, many churches... We say nothing. They do nothing. We leave this attitude unchecked. We claim that we want to be gracious and loving, but the truth is we really just want to be liked more than we love fellow people enough to call out sin. We do not just welcome the word by listening to a sermon on a Sunday morning. We welcome the word as the people of God by helping one another uphold the word of God. Second, there is an application to Paul's warning here that is a theological application. It's been said that the battle for the Bible is as old as the Garden of Eden when Eve was first tempted to doubt the trustworthiness of God's word. And every generation, it's been true since then, every generation has had to face its own battle for the belief in the inerrancy of the Bible. That's true, certainly true today. We're seeing it in our country, we're seeing it even in Baptist circles. It's not that the words of scripture have ever been popular in the world, but we're in a, a very interesting day, a day where postmodernism, which is the idea that truth is all relative, that, that is morphing into something else in our culture. There is in our world political and moral agendas that have become the world's truth with a capital T. And any belief supposed, for example, to the world's sexual ethic or identity politics is met with less and less tolerance. And so it is and it will be more and more difficult to be a Christian in our culture and to say what the Bible says and to believe what it teaches. People we've seen crucified in the media, and losing their positions, losing their jobs just for quoting the Bible. And Christians need to be ready. Are we ready to die on that hill, that hill of inerrancy, if need be? I think it was J.R. Packer who called the word inerrancy. By inerrancy, we mean that every word is the word of God, that there is no error in Scripture. He called that word inerrancy a modern shibboleth. Have you heard that word before? Do you know what he's referring to? In Judges 11 to 12, the Ammonites are attacking the the Gileadites. The Gileadites are part of the people of God. And Jephthah is the judge in that instance who was raised up to lead them. And he leads them to defeat the Ammonites. Well, the, the Ephraimites, who were also fellow Israelites, but they lived across the Jordan. Apparently, they'd been called to come and help in the battle and had refused, once the battle is over, they had the gall to say, why didn't you call for us? It seems perhaps that they maybe wanted some of the, the spoils of war for themselves, and they actually attacked the Gileadites. A battle took place, and Jephthah led, them, led the Gileadites to victory over Ephraim. And the Gileadites took the, the crossing of the Jordan to cut off Ephraim's escape, now, Ephraim had a different dialect to their brothers across the Jordan, and they couldn't pronounce the shh sound. And so when the Gileadites took the Jordan, they made any who would pass through and, and make that crossing, they made them say the word shibboleth. And if they couldn't pronounce it and say, instead said shibboleth, they killed them on the spot. And it sounds Harsh. But so says Packer, when we're debating the Bible, the word inerrancy must be a modern shibboleth. To be able to tell friend from foe. But are we ready? Are we ready for what the world will do? How the world will treat us if we hold to the inerrancy of scripture? The world has its own shibboleths. And those who can't affirm them are being cut down at the crossing. And for many in the church, the cost is going to be too great. We have been too comfortable. Many will remain in the church as long as it doesn't cost them too much or place great strain on their economic or social status. We don't relish being at odds with the world But as Christians, if we are consumed by the fear of men and the desire for the message always to be palatable and generally appealing, we are going to find it harder and harder in this world to be faithful to the Bible. We're already seeing, aren't we, church after church, changing the message, adapting the message. We're seeing a growth in what they call progressive Christianity, It's watering down the Bible's sexual ethic, undermining the trustworthiness of the Bible. And people are dying every day who have not received the word of God and do not know God, have not seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We don't fight the battle for the inerrancy of Scripture because we enjoy being combative or relish being hated. We do it because we know that if we cannot trust this book, then we have got nothing to offer the world. And we have no hope for ourselves, but we know that we can. We can trust every page, every line, every word. We don't accept it, therefore, begrudgingly. We welcome the word with reverence and submission. We hunger for what it can do in us and through us in the world. We welcome it because it gives us what we need, what we want more than anything else, and that's to see Christ, to know God, to see His glory. The Word of God leads us into life. And so we sing and pray as we welcome the Word of God, as we sang earlier, O oh God, reveal Your glory through the preaching of Your Word until every heart confesses Christ is Lord. Let's pray. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for how we treat this gift that you have given us. Forgive us for the times that we have disregarded your command and compromised what we believe and pursued other things. Forgive us for the way that we are so slow to pick it up and to read. So slow to take it up and read. And Father, I pray that you would challenge us this morning. God, only you can give us a hunger, a hunger for your word. We pray for that hunger that we may see revival in your church and in our community. We pray that you would make us useful. We pray that you would fill us with your word, that it overflows in the difficulties of life from our hearts. We pray that you would bring salvation to the lost because of what you are doing at Hillcrest Baptist Church. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.